So let's turn in Romans to Romans chapter 11. We're going to consider the rest of chapter 11 beginning in verse 11 all the way through verse 36 under the question, what about Israel? What about Israel from Romans chapter 11? Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 11 of Romans chapter 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespasses mean riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of this world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to become unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be My covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards the election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too have now been disobedient. So they too, excuse me, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has co-signed all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! 
How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. My most dear friends, it was a former president of the United States who said, if you abandon Israel, God will never forgive you. It was God's will that Israel, the biblical home of the people of Israel, continue forever and ever. It is comments like this that remind us that Israel and her place in history has long been the subject of controversy both politically and spiritually. Since the formation of the Israeli state in 1948, no country has quite captured the attention of the church like Israel. See, in the minds of many Christians, even today, the land in the Middle East belongs perpetually by God's assignment to the Hebrews. And their return to that land in the 1940s was viewed by many as the fulfillment of prophecy. I remember hearing a report some years ago that they estimated that in the 1940s, the Zionist movement collected $45 billion from North American Christians. Not Jews. Christians. And of course, the horrific attack on October 7th of this year by Hamas claiming the life of lives of more than a thousand Jewish people has thrust Israel again into the forefront of not only our minds, but the minds of our nation and the minds of our church. And again, people went back to the Bible. Is this prophecy? Is this fulfillment? What about Israel? But this has left many of many people outside of evangelicals, evangelical churches asking, well, what is it about Israel? What do we believe the Bible teaches concerning this nation that has so captured the attention of this world? What does the Bible have to say about Israel's place in history? And that is the question that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 11, the second half. But notice with me that Paul describes an amazing work of God in the people of Israel. An amazing work of His power. An amazing work of His grace. But it is not a return to Judaism. God's amazing work of power and grace is not a return to the Middle East nor is it a return to a temple in the city of Jerusalem where sacrifices are instituted. No, what Paul describes in Romans 11 is something so much better than a nation. Something so much better than a building. What Paul describes in Romans 11 is the turning of hearts. He describes the turning of many Jews' hearts to their Messiah. 
Not a return to a nation. Not a return to a religion. But a turning of hearts to the Messiah. This is what Paul says also in Ephesians 2. That God's plan and work in Israel is that the dividing wall will be removed so that Jew and Gentile become one person in Christ the Lord. By grace, through faith in Christ, Paul has hope that many Jews will be saved. I want to show you this in three movements this morning. Our first point, how far is too far? Our second point, quoting Paul here, all Israel will be saved. We want to dig into that. What does that mean? And then third, from despair to doxology. First, Paul punctuates his second section of Romans chapter 11 with another question. Like we looked at last week, verse 1 says, has God rejected Israel? Now he comes to a second question. Verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? See, God has not rejected Israel. But the question on the forefront of Paul's mind now is has Israel put themselves beyond recovery? To put it in modern terminology, how far is too far? Now, I want to begin this first point with a question for you. What is the sin, or is there a sin, that God cannot forgive? Is there a sin? Is there anyone who is so sinful, who can do something so bad, that they have become outside the reach of the hand of God? Can he save a murderer? What about an abuser? A hot-button issue I'd like to address maybe a little bit this morning that some people think puts someone beyond the scope of recovery. What about someone who rejects their gender? Goes through the surgery and the hormones. Does this person put them beyond recovery? Is there anything too far for God? Well, if we're considering the worst of sins that God can forgive, there is nobody who committed a worse atrocity than the Jews. Flip back to Romans 9, verse 4, and you'll see that God gave the Jews all the blessings. He gave them the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the promises. But the greatest thing that the Hebrews were given was Christ. Verse 5, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And when Christ came, He came to the Jew first. They were the first people to have the kingdom of God in their midst. They were the first people to hear of the forgiveness of sins. The Messiah, the one that they hoped for, stood before them. And what did they do to Him? They killed Him. See, I want to be very sensitive this morning because I know there are many atrocities in this world. There are wicked things going on in this world today. But every atrocity is always sinners versus sinners. Sinful men killing sinful men. But the killing of Christ 
the murder of Christ was the worst sin in the history of the world because it was sinner versus innocent. Sinful men killing an innocent man. He who had no sin was condemned as a criminal. He who is loved was hated by men. He who is worthy of all worship and adoration and praise was spit upon and then slapped in the face by the Sanhedrin. And when Pilate goes through the judicial process with Jesus and he says to the crowds, crowd of Jews, I find no reason to condemn this man. Do you remember what they said? His blood be upon us and our children. Here is the greatest man in human history. The fairest of 10,000. The lamb without blemish. And they nailed him to the cross. The greatest sin. Now this has led some people to anti-Semitism. There was people even in our Reformed tradition who said during the Holocaust that the Jews, this is what they asked for. When they rejected Christ, they became worthy of genocide. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that even despite their sins, God is not anti-Semitic. Even though they had committed the worst possible sin that man could ever commit, it was not an unforgivable sin. But we think in our minds, if there ever was an unforgivable sin, if there ever was a sin too far, this is it. But when Paul asks the question, has Israel put themselves beyond recovery is his answer not the gospel by no means that even in this great wickedness god has not rejected his people god paul says god actually uses israel's rejection to save many look at verse 11 through their trespass salvation has come to the gentiles that is god took God took the worst evil and used it for your good. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What Paul is describing here is that when God's Old Testament people rejected the Messiah, God turned to your forefathers. When the Jews said, let His blood be upon our heads, He took His eyes off of the covenant people of old and put them on you and me, Gentiles. He set His sights on our Gentile forefathers in Rome and in Thessalonica. He began to draw His elect from Germany, from Britain, from the Netherlands. God came to the United States and is drawing His elect people here. Through the worst of sins, God brought about the greatest good that He could bring about in your life, the salvation of our souls. 
He gave to the Gentiles the blessing of believing. And this is consistent with the Apostle Paul throughout his ministry. In Acts 13, he goes to the Jews and the Jews reject his gospel message and he says to them, since you, Jews, thrust it aside and you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are going to the Gentiles. Acts 18, he says the same thing. You, Jews, the blood be upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. See, the rejection of the Jews, their rejection of the Gospel, prompted the Apostles to bring the Gospel to you and to me. The Jewish rejection of their covenant God, becoming covenant breakers, prompted God to bring the Gospel to you and to me. To Gentiles. But this is where the story gets even sweeter. See, in God's salvation of the Gentiles, He did that not because He rejected the Jews. God didn't save you and me because He hated the Jews and was done with them and wanted nothing to do with them. Look what Paul says. He did it so that the Jews would be provoked to jealousy. What does that mean? Think about it like this. If you're a parent, maybe you have two kids, and one of your children is, and you say to both of them, I should say, let's go out for ice cream after dinner. But one of those children is disobedient. And so you say to that child, maybe they're a little bit older, You have to stay home. I'm taking the other child. Your mom and dad and I are going out for ice cream. And you come home and you're eating your ice cream and they're looking at it and they're jealous. That's supposed to be my blessing. That's supposed to be me with the blessing. So it is with the Jews, Paul says. The Gentiles are enjoying the fruits of the Messianic Kingdom. The Gentiles are receiving the benefits of justification by grace, through faith, in the Messiah, salvation apart from works, communion with God, and they're jealous. That's supposed to be me. That's supposed to be my life. God is provoking them to jealousy Why? Because He loves the Jews. Because He made a covenant with them. And as we saw last Sunday, God never rejects His people. But He is not provoking them to jealousy so that they would return to Judaism or so that they would return to the temple or that they would return to their law-keeping ways. But so that they might return, that they might turn to Christ. Be filled with hope this morning. The worst covenant breakers have not fallen beyond recovery. The murder of Christ by the Jews has not pushed them too far. God still has a plan for the Jews. So how does this work? 
Jews in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. Who are the true people of God? I was raised in the Free Methodist Church of Canada, and uh, I'm very thankful for my upbringing, but I was raised in a theological uh, tradition called dispensationalism. Have you come across that term? And dispensationalism teaches that God works with people in different stages in different ways. And so by all intents and purposes, God's interaction with the Jews is different from the way that he interacts with the church today. And what ends up happening is that the Jews, in the minds of many, were saved by law-keeping, and the church is saved by grace. Practically, God has a people of God in Israel, and he has his people in the church. As if God has two peoples. Israel's one people, the church has his other people. He has two different plans, two different ways of salvation. But notice how Paul describes God's people. He uses a botanical term, the olive tree, which we sang about in Psalm 52. It's an Old Testament metaphor for the church, for Israel. For God's people. And he plants this olive tree, Psalm 52 tells us, in the midst of his nation, but when his people reject him, he cuts off the branches and throws them into the fire. This botanical imagery is so vivid. Verse 17, the nourishing root. That's the gospel. Righteousness. The olive tree, that's the people of God. The wild shoot, verse 17, that's the Gentiles. Grafted in is describing the exercise of faith. You are grafted into this tree, Paul says, when you say, I believe and I trust in Jesus Christ. But notice what Paul is saying. The believing Jews and believing Gentiles are not two separate trees. They're not two separate lumps of dough. They don't believe different things. No, the one tree means that they are one people. One God. One Gospel. One people. Christ has taken Jew and Gentile and tore down the dividing wall, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And He has brought them into one. They're fellow citizens, fellow members of God's household, fellow heirs of the promise. And in the Gospel, there are no second-rate citizens. Jew and Gentile share equally in God. Boys and girls, do you know how important this is for your development and maturation in the faith? The Old Testament is not someone else's book that you only get by second hand. No, the promises, Paul says, are all yes in Christ. The promises of the Old Testament are your promises. The books of the Old Testament are your book. In the persons of the ancestors, we were at the Passover. We were sheltered under the, under the blood. We inherit the promises of God in Jesus. We are Israel. There's a warning here. A word of application against arrogance. I mentioned the anti-Semitism of the past. 
Paul says, don't look down your nose at the Jews for being fallen away and broken off, for we too can easily be broken off. We ought to welcome all people into our church and even pray for Israel and pray that God would fill our church with Jewish people and people of other ethnicities, black, brown, white, or whatever. That we'd be filled with men and women, filled with the able-bodied and the disabled. God is grafting many different peoples into the tree. So don't be arrogant. But also don't be discouraged. God broke many off, but He is going to graft many back in. Be encouraged. So our second point is a quotation from the Apostle Paul. All Israel will be saved. Now, since the beginning of chapter 9, the Apostle Paul has been wrestling with the question of what is Israel's place in the plan of God? And this is Paul's climax to that question. This is his conclusion. But it's also the most debated portion, section of this portion of Scripture. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles will come in And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Let's look first at the mystery. Dr. Venema, my professor, calls these verses the climactic conclusion of Paul's argument. That God's word has not failed. That his promises in respect to Israel are still true. And according to God's electing purposes, it has always been his plan that Israel would stumble. Verse 11. It was always God's plan that their hearts would be hard. It was always God's plan, verse 12, that God would save the Gentiles. And it was always God's plan that they will be provoked to jealousy. But notice in verse 25 an important word, the word until. Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That word until denotes something of the future. That something will happen after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. God will turn many Jews. He will turn many Israelites in faith to Jesus Christ. This is the mystery of the Gospel. That people who don't deserve salvation, that people who are hard of heart, people who commit great atrocities and sins are given the free grace of God according to His purpose of election. The mystery Paul reveals is this, that there will be a reversal of the fortune of Israel. And a time will come when all Israel will be saved. Here's the million dollar question. What does the phrase mean? All Israel will be saved. Well, in the history of the church, there have been three major interpretations to this verse. 
I'm going to give you all three, and I'm going to give you then my interpretation, which I think is the most credible. The first interpretation is that all Israel refers to the totality of the Jews, that every Jew at a certain point will be saved. That's number one. Number two is that Paul is referring to both Jews and Gentiles, the entirety of the elect of God. Or number three, does all Israel indicate elect Jews who will at one point come to faith in Christ? The most common view is number one here in the United States, which refers to the mass totality of Israel before the return of Christ. But I think that this has a problem because it doesn't capture the sense of that word all. Okay? All doesn't mean every single individual person, but it means, a, you know, in a sense, a totality of fullness. Just like in the same way that the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. But if it's referring to the totality of Israel prior to the return of Christ, as Anthony Hokema points out, this doesn't capture that sense of all. Because only the last generation of Jews will receive the blessing. So it's not all. It's only some. So we must rule out, number one, it doesn't refer to totality. Well, the second idea is that it refers to Jews and Gentiles, the fullness of the elect. But the problem is, is that in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is referred to Israel 11 times in these chapters, never once including the Gentiles. Always referring to the people of Israel. So it can't be number two, Jews and Gentiles. This leads me to the conclusion, and what I want to suggest to you this morning, is that we should interpret all Israel in the same way, flip back to chapter 9, we did in verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6. Where Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul says there is a distinction between ethnic, national Israel and the elect Israel. The elect Jews. Just like there's a distinction here in our church and in every church that not everybody who goes to church believes in what the church teaches. So all Israel, then, I think means the totality of elect Jews. Jews in Israel. Not just the last generation, but the Jews from the beginning, Adam and Eve and Abraham and Noah to the end of time, the elect Jews. In other words, what Paul is teaching us is that one day when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God in His grace will remove the hardness of heart that Israel's unbelief and their rejection of the Messiah will give way to faith. That their rejection will become acceptance. And that God will gather in His elect as He is doing right now. And it will depend not on ethnicity, it will not depend on works, but according to God's purpose of election. God will save the fullness of Jews. Fullness doesn't mean every Jew, just like fullness doesn't mean every Gentile. 
verse 12. But many Jews will believe on that day. Consider how hopeful this makes the Apostle Paul. He looks into his world and he sees Jew after Jew rejecting the Gospel. But he knows that one day God will soften their hearts and he will save many. Hallelujah. Now I want to point out one more thing, a very important thing. Notice that Paul says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is the promise. That just like how the floodgates opened and many Gentiles were saved, Paul is saying, so will many Jews be saved. But how will they be saved? In this way. Not by law-keeping. They will not be saved by their circumcision. They will not be saved by works righteousness. They will be saved in the same way the Gentiles are saved. In Christ. Verse 23, just like the Gentiles need to be grafted in by grace through faith in Christ, so do the Jews need to be grafted in by faith through grace in Christ. They need to exercise faith in the Gospel. That when the natural branches are regrafted into the righteous root, it will be by justification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not on human merit, but on God who has mercy. Allow me to be as clear as I can possibly be. The Bible does not say the Jews must return to their native homeland in order to be saved. The Bible does not say that they need to reinstate a temple and reinstitute the sacrifices. How does the Bible say Jews are saved? The prophet Zechariah puts it this way, I will pour out on the Jews a spirit of grace and a plea for mercy so that they will look upon Me, Him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn. And they will be saved. The prophet cannot be clearer. When the Jews repent of their sins and they look to the crucified Messiah, they will be saved. That's why Paul says, in this way, they will be saved. When a deliverer comes, Chapter 11, verse 26 and 27. When a deliverer comes who will banish ungodliness from Zion, this will be my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. Christ is the way in which Jews are saved. R.C. Sproul says verse 29 is one of the most comforting in the Bible. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When the Lord gives someone a gift of His mercy and His grace, it's irrevocable. When He exercises His redeeming call, it's final. Even in our disobedience, which displeases Him and may provoke Him to wrath, He will never take His gift away. So as Paul looks at the Jews of his day who has rejected the Gospel, who have disobeyed, who have provoked, he is comforted to know that in the future, there is a call 
there is a gift. And the fullness of the Jews, the fullness of the elect Jews, will be brought in to Christ. So a word of application. What does this look like practically? What this means is that there will be a period of hardness where the Jews' hearts are hard. That's what we are living in today. So few Jews have come to Christ in Paul's day and in our day. But Paul says many will embrace the Messiah and come. The vast majority have rejected Christ in favor of a works-based righteousness. But this passage shows us that there will be an ingathering. There will be a conversion of many elect Jews in the future. This does not mean that every individual Jew in Israel will be saved. But just as God opened up many of our hearts, many hearts of His elect people in the Gentile world, so will He open up the hearts of many Jews. And so through the preaching of the Gospel, all the nations will come in. All the nations will turn to Him in fear. All peoples will own Him as the Lord. Not just the Gentiles. Not just the Jews. But all peoples from every land, tribe, nation, and tongue will be one people in Christ. What hope this gives the Apostle. Do you remember how he began this epistle? Or excuse me, this section of the epistle? Flip with me to Romans chapter 9. He was in despair. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. This was the lowest you'd ever seen, Paul. Wishing he was even accursed for the sake of the Jews. But as he considers God's wonderful purposes in saving the Gentiles, yes, but also the Jews, you see how he moves from despair to doxology. Consider what he's taught in the last three chapters. God has taken both Jew and Gentile and according to His purpose of election, And through the obedience and the satisfaction of Christ, He has broken down the walls of division. And He has created one in Christ. One body. One man. The Gentiles once walking in darkness, now members of the household of God. Paul tells us that believing Jews and Gentiles make up one man, one olive tree, one spiritual temple who Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. This has been God's plan from the beginning. Not by works, not by moral achievement, but by grace in Christ. Paul can't hold it in any longer. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His ways, His judgment. How inscrutable are His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? For from Him and through Him and to Him are the glory forever. Amen. He can't hold it in. It's like he has to throw down the pen, fall on his knees, and give glory to the saving God of Jew and Gentile. Bond and free. Male and female. 
He's gathering his elect. That final verse, verse 36. You could do a whole sermon series on it. For from him, Christ is the source of our salvation. And through him, he is the accomplisher of our salvation. And to him, he is the goal of our salvation. Should you desire salvation this morning? Are you a Jew this morning, wherever you may be found? Do you desire to come into the kingdom? To know the Messiah? Paul says, there's only one way. From Christ, in Christ, and to Christ. And to Him be the glory forever. Amen. There is a work of salvation for you and for me. Come, Paul says, to Christ. One word of application that needs to be said before we conclude. You see here that doctrine must always lead to doxology. May we never be a people who delight in God's doctrines of election and reprobation, who debate over our views of the end times and what is Israel's place without afterwards falling on our knees and saying, from, through, and to Him be all of the glory. Paul says when he considers it all, he has no reason to despair, even over the sorry lot of his fellow Jews. He knows that in the future, God has a plan for them. There is no one who is too far gone. And God's, there is no one whose hearts are too hard for God not to work in them and produce salvation for the Jews and the Gentiles. And so to Him, the saving God, be all the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we come to You today and we thank You that even in our sin, there is not a single person in this room who has offended You so that they cannot be saved. For You are tender-hearted and merciful to Your people. And we thank You, Lord, that we are able to rejoice with Paul that in the future, there will be a great ingathering of the fullness of the Jews. We look forward to that day and we pray that we would be participants in that day. That You would gather in Your elect people of Israel even here in this church. And we pray to You be the glory in it all. In Jesus' name, Amen.